Hey, uh, Mike, thanks very much for having me. You know, uh, you were just saying a second ago how tough it has been for us to connect in the last few years. Um, I was talking to my wife, Tricia, who works with me on these projects, and we said for the past few years, we've essentially been doing social distancing without realizing it and doing (laughs) self-isolation. Now we're ready to come out, and they're telling us to come back inside, so I'm not quite sure what to do. (laughs) Gerald, you are always a trendsetter. You're always ahead of the curve. That's very funny. As an author, you guys do work and work and work and work, and you research, and then the book hits, it, it hit this Tuesday, and I know there were a series of appearances, uh, bookstore visits, etc. How has this affected your press tour? Well, I mean, uh, substantially, Harvard Bookstore canceled politics and prose in Washington there, supposed to be on Connecticut Avenue, coming up on the 25th, a, a great event we were going to have canceled, um, uh, not going out to New York to do shows, so... It's had a real impact on that, but I think that a group of us as writers are trying to figure out, those who have published in March and coming up in April, is there a way to do appearances virtually at stores? Where even, I don't think the the buyers at bookstores want to come out and be in a crowd to listen to somebody talk about their book, but they might be willing to come into a virtual meeting and watch the author and send in questions. So it may not be as lively. You can't stand in a book line and get a signature, but maybe we'll adapt to this unusual period and figure out a way to do it germ-free. That's a great idea. Virtual uh, book signings, and you can sign the books on camera so they have uh, the provenance, if you will, proving that their book was signed and then ship them, but ship them ground so that they've got a 14 day quarantine, if you quarantine, if you will. So if yeah, anything is, that, is on them. Yeah, no, does. that's I, I understand. You know what? Another thing that uh, we're, we're doing is I'm doing some book clubs, book clubs that take the book and uh, they have a group of 20 people. I'm doing Skype into those book clubs or Zoom so that the author can be there talking to them about the book. Little things that, you know, in the past you wouldn't have had to think about. And thank goodness for social media, radio like yours, print, it still gets the word out. But it does feel a little bit odd not going out for what I call the traditional book tour. But I can't complain because there are people, uh, you know, whose lives depend on uh, the tips they earn in restaurants and in the the business and in cruise industry and in air and everything else. Everybody is having to tighten the belt and sacrifice on this across the board. We're doing it as a country and we have to. Yeah, it's a really a, a different time and something that we have none of us have seen in our lifetime. The last time any kind of national coming together like this happened, I believe, was probably World War II when um, my parents and grandparents talked about the sacrifices they made because business changed, everything changed. And while we're not in a war, we're kind of in a war against this virus and these germs. Uh, you yep. studied the pharmaceutical industry, Gerald, for the last five years. And I know the, the original basis of this book was to get into a lot about the opioid crisis we were facing. But you, you learned a lot about pharma and how they operate and what, what they do and what they have to do in order to be a business as well as a, an industry that solves medical problems. As you look at what's going on today, are, are you surprised by the president bringing in the pharmaceutical industry to help us out? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I think it's a smart move. It has to be a public-private response. Um, if it's not, government can't move fast enough on its own. Uh, 
private companies can't do it without the big backing of the government. So this is a perfect example where you need both the power of the government, the money that the government can flood in immediately, billions of dollars, and the ability of uh, those private companies to be able to move and mobilize. So it works like that very well. Uh, in a crisis, fantastic. Uh, the And I think we will see the best of both of this as it, as it gets in. You know, my complaints in the past have been that on other public-private partnerships, the taxpayer spends a lot of money on the National Institutes of Health for drug research, which they come up with some great discoveries, then drug companies take that research and they patent it, which gives them a right to sell it and make billions of dollars. The taxpayer gets nothing back. Nothing goes back to research for the government. So that's a different type of uh, situation. We can complain about that, you know, when the pandemic's over. But for the pandemic, I like this type of arrangement. Yeah, I'm with you on it. On You know, our relationship with Israel has uh, the United States giving a ton of funding to Israel for different things. And a part of the billions that we provide to Israel are also for research and development. But there's an interesting caveat in that agreement with Israel. If they discover something, be it a weapon or a drug or some sort of technology, and they bring it to market, we are then profit partners. We, America, are profit partners. I would like to see a similar breakout from anything that happens with this public-private partnership over this uh, COVID-19, and maybe that's going to happen. Yeah, you know, Mike, you're right, because in the $8.3 billion emergency funding that went through the other day in Congress, the first real batch, pharma fought, successfully lobbied to take out a clause that was in the original draft that said if something's discovered by one of these companies in the course of all of this research that's being funded by the government, it the intellectual property, the rights to it would be shared by all of them, sort of public goods. And they they were able to keep that out, meaning that if they discover something, it can be used for this vaccine coming up to fight COVID-19, but in the end, they will own it. That's unfortunate because, you know, it would be great at this point to sort of share for the public good. Um, I understand their businesses, they're for-profit, nothing wrong with that. Uh, they've got to make money, and they do. But uh, that's a thing that got lost in the $8.3 billion. We're rushing to do it. I'm just watching it because I have the microscope on pharma, and I thought, boy, those lobbyists were good. They should get a medal you know, from the, the drug companies because they're still protecting the drug companies' interests long-term, even though it's a national crisis. Microscope on pharma. I see what you did there. Very good, Gerald. Uh, the, the, the author is Gerald Posner. The book is Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. And in this book, it is a, just a wonderful history of, of the pharmaceutical industry. And it takes us through the, the opioid crisis, but it goes way back in time to the development of heroin, of morphine, and how these drugs became commonplace in America, and then leads us up to present day in the opioid crisis. And chapter 51, Gerald, is entitled The Coming Pandemic. Are you prescient, or was this uh, related to something slightly different? Yeah, no, I, w I wasn't uh, at all. I had no idea, Mike, that a pandemic was, uh, I'd be publishing into a pandemic. I mean, there are enough doctors out there who warned me, and they're in that chapter, that at some point a pandemic would come along. They were afraid of sort of, you know, super germs, the bugs you hear about in hospitals, the resistant to antibiotics. What's hit us now, COVID is different. It's, it's a virus. But, you know, th these are the same types of fears, which is, are we ready as a society? And the one thing that I underestimated, I realized in this, I was writing about what the effect could be on all of us in 
terms of deaths and infections and that it's coming at some point. Now that I've seen it, I realize that I missed out on the fear factor. The fear that takes place, it empties the shelves, as you were talking about, or you've talked about earlier on the show, that you walk into some place, you know, there's no toilet paper, no water left. Uh, there are people arguing about a car to Trader Joe's and this, and they're fighting at Costco. That's the little element where we're all in the same place. We all sort of have to cooperate with each other, but you forget about it sets in that underlying fear. And that's the element that makes the pandemic even a little bit worse because it adds to stress and anxiety across the board. Yeah, and it does. And it has uh, the, the end of that chapter wraps up with it's not a matter of if or yeah, it's not a matter of if, but when, and we're in the middle of when right now. And if you're at home and you've got a couple of weeks and you need a great book to curl up with, this uh, this massive tome of uh, virtually 800 pages of great research as well as investigative journalism is there for you. Pharma from my buddy Gerald Posner. Gerald, thank you, my friend, and say hello thanks. to the dish. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. I will. I'll give you one last peek. The New York Times Review, which comes out tomorrow, calls it a pharmaceutical version of cops and robbers. I love that line. It is. Right. And it is that. Great, right. great line. I can't believe I'm praising the New York Times, but there it is. <laughs> Anything can happen. <laughs> I didn't think that was possible. <laughs> no, no. Congratulations on that one, Gerald. Good job. Sir. We'll, Thanks, we'll, we'll talk again soon. There he goes. My buddy, Gerald Posner.